All right. Welcome to another week of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee. And this week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor McBride of San Francisco State University. We talked about the Western, specifically in film. He is a biographer who's done work all over the field of that particular genre, whether it's on actors such as John Wayne or biographies on Frank Capra, uh, biographies on John Ford, etc. So so the reason that I wanted to hunt this topic down about the, the Western in film is that it's so intrinsically tied with who we are as a nation, as America. And as our nation grew and went through events such as the World Wars and Vietnam, um, and even just up through the 90s and today, the genre was subverted in, in several ways. So how do we feel about the cowboy? And, you know, maybe after Vietnam, we're very skeptical of someone who comes in and wants to clean house and put a society back in order as he sees it. So it, it's a fun genre to trace and watch and see how directors treat the topic, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, etc. As we all know, America's identity and its history is a very polarizing subject. So you can imagine that academic work concerning the Western genre spans the entire political spectrum. Um, while I certainly don't agree with all of the characterizations and generalizations that Professor McBride makes, I really enjoyed having him on to talk about all of the connections and the stories and the people that he knew and still knows to this day. He was also super gracious as I poked at uh, the Coen Brothers film, No Country for Old Men. So without further ado, please enjoy and meet Professor Joseph McBride. Now welcoming on special guest, Professor Joseph McBride who teaches at San Francisco State University, teaches the Western. Um, we were just saying your CV is a wild uh, ride of all kinds of things. Um, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you giving me your time. Oh, it's great to be talking to you. And I know you're greatly interested in the Western. It's my favorite genre, so I love talking about it. And uh, so it's going to be fun. We'll talk about a lot of things. Perfect. So I'll just, as a way of introduction, I'll say I've, I've uh, recently just thought I'm going to run a rabbit trail of, of the Western. I think it's uh, one of the interesting aspects, I think, is it's sort of uh, a kindred spirit to America and how it's going. So with the whole history of you have the, the Western and then it gets subverted over and again and again, it basically for the time that it was made. And so that's always interested me. And so I was... Uh, Amazoning all these, trying to find books about the Western and directors of the Western. And I came across a biography on John Ford, who did a ton of early Westerns, was uh, very close with John Wayne, who he directed quite a bit. And it was by a biographer named uh, Joseph McBride. And so I thought uh, halfway through, I was like, man, I'd love to talk to this guy. I wonder if he'd be open to it. And you have been kind to do so. So um, I was hoping. Could you just sort of introduce us to the Western and, and maybe, especially in film? Well, I'm a baby boomer born in 1947. And when I was a kid, it's different from today. Um, we all went to Westerns all the time. Uh, on Saturday afternoons, we'd see a matinee of a Western or a sci-fi film or, you know, things, cartoons and things like that. And I also um, 
would see a Western every day after school at four o'clock on television. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's called, uh, there was a show in Milwaukee called Foreman Tom's Jamboree. So I'd run home and see a Western. So I saw tons of Westerns and uh, it meant a lot to us as kids growing up. And we all had uh, cap guns and cowboy outfits and Hopalong Cassidy outfits. And there were a lot of Westerns on TV. Uh, the, the TV Westerns were shot on the back lot. So I've always been a great fan of Westerns. I, I'm, I think of myself as more of a historian of American history than anything else or an investigative reporter. I've been a reporter since 1960. And somebody said the Western is America. I mean, that's a broad, <laughs> broad statement, but it is our national mythology. And as you say, uh, it's been subverted a lot in the genre. And that's part of what's interesting about the genre is that it it can be used for many things. And uh, the genre also overlaps with other genres. There are film noir Westerns, there are comedy Westerns, there are romantic Westerns, there are all kinds of, uh, uh, the genre is very fertile and, and broad. A genre noir who I knew in Hollywood said, um, the, the marvelous thing about Westerns is that they're all the same film and that gives the director unlimited <laughs> freedom. He said, which is a great comment. And, and the, the Europeans love Westerns. I once asked somebody from France, I said, why do you guys like Westerns so much? And he said, oh, you know, the, the wide open spaces, we don't have those in Europe, you know. <laughs> and, and they love seeing, uh, you know, Monument Valley and the American West. And uh, I do too. And, you know, I was thinking when I taught Ford, who I'm teaching right now at San Francisco State, and I'm teaching the Western again in the fall. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it occur yeah we're going to do it remotely, unfortunately. But, um, you know, it occurred to me uh, after I did my biography of Ford, and I've done two books on him, I did a critical study with Mike Wilmington in 1974 called John Ford, which uh, both of the books were written at times when he was out of fashion. And we can talk about why. And I, I wanted to bring him back into fashion. Now he's he's as well-established as one of our greatest directors. Uh, there have been a number of other books in recent years, too. And so uh, he's in no danger of being forgotten. But when I wrote those books, I would say John Ford, and people would give me this horrible blank stare. Uh, but it occurred to me that, gee, why do I like Westerns? Well, my family, they're Irish immigrants uh, on both sides of the family, and they live the Western experience. My uh, my mother's family uh, uh, were coal miners and silver miners, and uh, one of my grandparents was killed in a coal mining accident in Pennsylvania, and his wife and daughter took a wagon train west with a Civil War general named uh, John O'Neill, and they founded O'Neill, Nebraska. I mean, Nebraska was the west in those days. And, yeah. And, they and then they were robbed by the Jesse James gang. My my relatives, my Irish relatives think that's the coolest thing about our family, that we're robbed by the Jesse James gang. And they were, um, what they did was they, uh, I guess it was my great grandfather and his brother were, were out with their horses and the James gang was escaping from robbery and they stole their horses, but they, they swapped them for their worn out horses. So they were nice about it. And I tell my family, if we'd only stuffed them, we would be wealthy today. But <laughs> and my grandfather taught on an Indian reservation uh, and became sympathetic to Indians when he was young. And, and then in, uh, the other side of the family, um, the, 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 the McBride side of the family was uh, the, the, were the ones that were in Nebraska and, and Wisconsin. So, um, and my great grandmother, uh, who I actually knew, uh, Julia Dunn, in Idaho, drove a stagecoach uh, 
so I mean, you know, this is how close we are to the yeah. the old the old West. It right. was you know within living history, uh, at least to people my age. And uh, you know, uh, Wyatt Earp died in uh, you know around 1930. And so, so um, one one thing that's marvelous about early westerns is that um, a lot of the cowboys. Uh, the outlaws and the lawmen and those people came to Hollywood when the frontier ended. Uh, the closing of the frontier, Frederick Jackson Turner, who was a historian at the University of Wisconsin, wrote a famous paper in 1893 called The, uh, the, Clo- uh, the Significance of the Frontier in American History. And he declared that the frontier period was over. And a lot of historians now think that the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890 marked the end of the frontier period when the Indians were finally defeated and almost destroyed and and it's interesting the movies began right around that time 1893 1894 and john ford was born in 1894 and so what happened when when they when the frontier ended uh a lot of those people moved to hollywood to create the myths of the, the west on film and uh what they did was romanticize it and uh you know they they romanticized native americans after they had killed most of them and so the early Westerns actually were, were quite sympathetic to Indians until about till the 30s when and the mood of the country changed and they started demonizing the Indians in films. And Ford's films have a complex view of Native Americans. and Sometimes he portrays them in a sympathetic light, sometimes not as sympathetic. And I could talk about that as an interesting subject. But, you know, you can chart the kind of evolution of America through the Western. And Michael Coyne, a British writer, wrote a book on the Western, and he said the history of the Western is the history of disillusionment with America. Hmm. And he wrote about the in the period of the bicentennial in 1976, people were making very disillusioned Westerns. Uh, the Vietnam War, I had the theory for a while, the Vietnam War killed the Western because it killed the myth of the frontier again uh, because the frontier had become Asia. And the, the, the iconography is very similar if you look at Apocalypse Now and films like that. Uh, the Western has an ability to rejuvenate itself. And um, in that period, they were making what we call end of the West Westerns, the Wild Bunch, Little Big Man. Uh, and the Vietnam War was taboo in American filmmaking. So Westerns, uh, were made that were kind of thinly disguised films about the Vietnam War, like uh, The Wild Bunch, uh, as I mentioned, and uh, Little Big Man was very much about, well, I mean, that was about Custer, but it was very much Vietnam-related. The Indians, a lot of them were played by Asians, for example. And then they began parroting Westerns, which, I mean, they've been doing that from the beginning, but Mel Brooks made Blazing Saddles, and sometimes they say when a genre is parodied, then you know it's dead. But the point about the Western, people have been declaring it dead since the early 1900s. Uh, there's a very good book on, on the Western by Scott Simon. And he said by 1910 or so, they were saying the Western genre was finished. And it, it wasn't. I mean, it's, you know, there were more Westerns made than any other genre for a long time. But it is true that since the uh, 50s, the genre has has not been as popular as it was. And it's rare to see a major Western. There are some, and some do very well, like Unforgiven, great film, won the Best Picture Award, and Dances with Wolves. But um, the young audience does not care as much about American history as we did. And we're not, the young people are not as involved in the myth of the right. West. They're, 
you know, Star Wars, I think, is another milestone when that came along. That's kind of a Western, but it's a science fiction film. And uh, the science fiction genre kind of replaced the Western for a while. When we say things like uh, the the continued disillusion with America, um, I thought was a great line and totally true. Can you maybe unpack what was the Western and in the beginning? Um, and I'm thinking in terms of like stagecoach when you first see John Wayne, you know, well, there's you that, got, there's you that awe. Back, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that actually came pretty late in the genre because the Westerns really began in the 1890s and right. stagecoach was 1939. Stagecoach is a film that, as Andre Bazan said, kind of sums up the Western by taking all the cliches or the tropes of the genre and, and making them perfect you know right uh, however ford and dudley nichols his uh screenwriter um subverted the western in some ways because the characters are uh, the cliches are often reversed that the the people who are respectable are not the people that you admire and the people who are the outlaws are the ones you like and his early films dealt with what we call the noble outlaw figure romantic uh conception of a person who's on the outside of society and ford was son of irish immigrants from maine which was a very uh, portland maine was a very waspish uh area and he he grew up in a multicultural neighborhood and that's one thing i like about his films is he always involves all the different ethnic groups in america but he always identified with the outsider so his stagecoach is sort of subversive but I mean, I just have been doing some audio commentaries on some of his silent westerns, uh, Three Bad Men and Straight Shooting and some other ones. And he made 54 westerns in his career, which is astonishing. I mean, I, I said to him when I interviewed him in 1970, he made a lot of westerns. And he said, I haven't made that many westerns. And, you know, <laughs> 54. I mean, most directors don't make 54 films in their whole lives anymore. But he did a lot of other kinds of films, which is what he was trying to point out. But, um, from the beginning, he was uh, had a very sophisticated view of uh, the West, and he was kind of both uh, romanticizing and, and uh, satirizing Western uh, mythology and heroes. And so the genre was very um, complex in the in the silent period, and um, his Three Bad Men is the best surviving silent film that Ford made. I think it's a film about a land rush, and it's it's about three, as the title implies, three disreputable characters who are actually the heroes of the film and so uh, the the whole idea that when people i mean i remember one student wrote a paper and said you know westerns are all about the good guys wearing the white hats and the bad guys wearing the black hats and i said to this person how many westerns have you seen and she said oh about 10 you know <laughs> so that's that that is what people who don't know westerns think is that it's some simple-minded um black and white morality literally and it's not you know, and it's in the hands of good writers and directors and actors. It's a very rich and sophisticated genre. So uh, Ford um, evolved a lot. Uh, Ford Apache is one of my favorite films, 1948, which is, I mean, I remember when I was watching Foreman Tom's Jamboree, I was a little guy and I was getting beaten up every day in school. And I was, um, so I, I instinctively um, identified with, um, the underdog and i began looking at these westerns and I, I i thought why are these indians getting killed all the time what's the story here i you know i began sympathizing with the indians and i i, I began wishing for a film in which the indians would win for a change 
And one day I came home and I saw one where they won and I was overjoyed. And I don't know what it was, but I, I wonder if it was Fort Apache because there weren't too many others. But sure. <clears throat> when I rediscovered that in uh, 1967, that changed my life because it, it set me on my course of studying John Ford, which I've been doing for 53 years now. And uh, It's a film, not only the Indians win, it's a, a kind of a Custer tale in disguise because they wouldn't let Ford make a film directly debunking Custer, so he fictionalized it a bit. But the Indians win, but they're the good guys. They're the heroes of the film. And it criticizes this um, insane racist commander played by Henry Fonda. And John Wayne is his subordinate who's sympathetic to the Indians. And so again, if people think John Wayne always hates Indians in his films, they should look at Fort Apache. So that's an example of, uh, but that film doesn't get mentioned very much. You know, they say in the 50s, they started making films again where Indians were treated well, like Broken Arrow and films like that. But Ford had been there already with Fort Apache. And one of the things I found out in his papers, uh, when I did the biography, I found a letter that a woman wrote to him in 1948 when Fort Apache came out. And she said, why are you making all these Westerns after, you know, the war had ended and he came back from the war and most of his films were Westerns. And actually they're mostly concerned with war for the first four or five years he came back. He was obsessed with war in one form or another, which is not surprising. But he wrote her very candidly and said, you know, in, in a Western you can deal with all kinds of important social themes and he, I'm not sure he mentioned this, but, you know, you can deal with racial themes like he did in that film or criticizing the military, et cetera. And that was a time when the Red Scare was on. And Ford said to her, you couldn't do this in a contemporary setting. You'd get in too much trouble, you know. So uh, the Western is a wonderful vehicle. And, and part of it was nobody paid any attention to the Westerns. The critics looked down on them and didn't even review most of them. And so he was able to slip in all kinds of uh, subversive stuff. Fort Apache is one of the most subversive films ever made in America. Um, but, you, you know, so a director like him can, can deal with a lot of social themes in disguise if you're uh, clued into it. Yeah. So let's with uh, with John Ford in particular. So a very unsophisticated gloss of the Western um, in terms of history would be, you know, there was the John Ford uh films and then here comes Sergio Leone who totally subverted his whole career or something like that but I, I from your book and then just from watching these and and a little bit how you're talking um John Ford just seemed to have an arc in terms of what he thought of the western and and his own subversions can you talk about him like did his opinion of the western change or in light of american events you mentioned he yeah. came back from the war can you talk about John Ford's arc in terms of, um, did he fall into the same disillusionment trap? Yes, he did very definitely. His work evolved. And I think great directors do evolve. You know, if you're static and, and don't change, you're not really a first-rate filmmaker. And he evolved in response to uh, historical changes. He was a man who read a lot and he knew a lot about history and he was in the military. And um, But in his early films, he was... Um, critical of society in some ways, but he was uh, not as complex or sophisticated. And stagecoach, the Indians are the one-dimensional threat. You know, they're, they're seen on the hilltop. They're kind of the noble savage, as they used to be called. They're impressive looking, but they're just there to attack the stagecoach. But 
his view of Indians became more sympathetic and sophisticated. And he had a research assistant, Catherine Clifton, who worked on Fort Apache and other films. That she was, uh, her main job, she told me, was to catalog Ford's library and, re and read books with him because he, he couldn't find anybody else to talk to about books. So he would give her 10 or 15 books every week and tell her to read them. And she, they'd talk about them. And anyway, I said to her, why do you think Ford's view of Indians changed after Stagecoach? And she said, he came to know them. Very simple and very profound, you know, because he, it's the first film he made in Monument Valley on the Navajo reservation. And he, he came to know the people there and he became friendly with them and, and liked them. And, you know, you get to know people, you take their point of view more. And so he goes back and he makes My Darling Clementine and Fort Apache. And then, uh, other films, Wagon Master is a really great film. It's very optimistic. It's sort of the height of Ford's optimism, made in 1949, came out in 1950. Very simple, beautiful film, poetic. It's like his early Westerns, but it's it's full of uh, kind of hope for America. But it also deals with some, um, it deals with uh, ethnic bias against Mormons. And uh, one thing, that, uh, there are the three groups of despised people in that film, the Mormons, the Indians, and these um, horse traders, these young men, and Ford's sympathies with those three groups who are on the margins of society. And I remember there are a couple of reviews of the film I looked up from 1950, and, and they complained about the film. They said, well, it's okay, it looks nice, but, you know, the Indians are nice people, so we're deprived of any kind of exciting uh, fight with the Indians. <laughs> Uh, there's not much violence in the film. And that's, I mean, that's what we like about the film today is that the Indians are sympathetic and there's not a lot of violence. The two young guys are not into violence. Uh, at the end of the film, there's a brief gunfight and then the, Ben Johnson throws his gun out into the, the, the desert. Uh, but then Ford's vision kind of darkened in the 50s. Um, he got older and America was changing and it's a complicated subject, but he made The Searchers, which is a great film that a lot of people today admire a lot because it deals with John Wayne's character being a, a racist. He's a, he starts out what you think is the hero. He's going to rescue his niece who's kidnapped by Indians. And, but as you go along, you realize that he's out to kill her because he's a racist and he's, he's thinking that she's sleeping with an Indian chief and, that fills him with horror. And so Jeffrey Hunter is this more modern kind of younger guy who tries to stop him. And so it subverts the myth of the hero. And at every stage of the film, he keeps losing the girl. And then there's a kind of a clownish, uh, holy fool played by Hank Warden who keeps finding her and he finds her at the end. And, but at the end of the film, Wayne has a, a change of heart and saves the girl. And it's very well motivated. Uh, but he's not, still an outcast in society at the end, but he doesn't find her. This other guy finds her and then he brings her home. But w I, you feel very complicated toward this guy because you kind of despise him in some ways, but in other ways he, he does a heroic feat when he brings her back and deposits her on, on the porch of the home. It's a tremendous uh, achievement, five-year quest. Um, but very complex feeling in that film. But the, the summit of Ford's... Um, view of the Western was the Manor Show to Liberty of Alice in 1962. And anybody who wants to really study the genre might start with that because um, it's, it's a very intellectual film. It's explicitly about the West and the myth and how we take history and turn it into myth and lies. And basically it shows American history is just a big pack of lies that 
that we live by. We're a very delusional country. Uh, Gore Vidal called America the United States of Amnesia. And uh, Liberty Valance is about a gunfight, which is lied about, and the wrong man gets, quote, credit, unquote, for killing the bad guy. And and, uh, it's a very tragic, dark, sad, deeply sad film. And it's seen from the female point of view because Vera Miles, uh, Ford said he, he, he made it from the woman's point of view. And it's uh, John Wayne plays a kind of a tragic character and Jimmy Stewart is tragic in a different way. And it's a very, very sad film about the West. And it, it uh, some people underrate it because it doesn't have the beautiful visual romantic look of his other Westerns. It's um, deliberately drab shot on the back lot and then some uh, nondescript uh, exterior locations. But he did that on purpose because it's a film of ideas. And I found a letter he wrote to Bosley Crowther, who is the clueless critic of the New York Times. This is the only time Ford ever did this that I know of. He wrote him a letter before the film came out and he said, I want you to know that I made this film like a silent Western, made it real simple with simple settings and all because I wanted to focus on the characters. It's a film of ideas. Crowther didn't get it, so he attacked the film. He said, well, this film doesn't look very exciting and it's, you know, not as talky and it's, you know, drab looking, blah, blah, blah. You know, they just didn't get Westerns in those days. And he made Cheyenne Autumn big uh, spectacle, his most expensive film two years later about Indians. And um, it's a flawed film because he had to make a lot of compromises to make it, but it's a powerful work of visual poetry. And it's a very disturbing film. It's about genocide. And to give Crowther his due, he, he, he tried to get Ford a career achievement award from the New York film critics circle and they turned him down. That's, that's typical of uh, the American reviewers at the time. They just didn't like Westerns. And uh, so Ford was a, as Andrew Saris said, um, he knew by that time that his audience was in Europe and Asia. You know, and Ford said that he gave a great interview in Cosmopolitan. Somebody asked him to defend the Western and he gave it, it was probably his most eloquent interview, very unusual for him. Um, and he basically said people in uh, Europe and Asia like to hear about the Indians. So I made this film. And so that, so really, um, people in other countries care about our history more than we do. Now, I'm curious, is uh, you mentioned the film, and I just for, and I forgot the title of it, uh, the one in 1950 that Ford did. Uh, Wagon Master. Yes, that was sort of the height of his optimism. And then, of course, uh, is it 1956 that The Searchers comes out and... You were mentioning kind of the end there, and you're kind of a mess of complicated feelings as to how you feel about John Wayne's character, and yeah. and I think that last uh, the shot sort of pulling out uh, back into the house, and John Wayne is just outside, you know, yeah. sort of kicking dirt out there. Um, and then you mentioned his film in 1962. I'm curious, you know, it, it would almost make sense when you're thinking about it, like oh, he came back from World War II really all of the West is sort of disillusioned at this point. Um, why, why did that film come in 1950? Well, they had, Ford was in the OSS and the Navy throughout World War II. He filmed many films in combat and training films and reconnaissance films. And so he was an admiral in the Navy by, by the time of the Korean War. Very patriotic guy, but he also questioned military authority because he was a maverick. Um, but I think after the war, these guys, the generation came back and there's a 
book and film called Five Came Back about five directors, uh, Ford and uh, Houston and Weiler and Stevens and uh, Capra. And they served in the war and they came back different guys. I mean, George Stevens told me, he said, I suppose I was never as hilarious again because he had been, he mm. helped liberate Dachau, you know. Right. And so Ford, Ford, uh, they, they had triumphed over fascism, but they had seen the cost and the, and the horrors and the reality of war. Uh, and yet there was a sense of achievement and that America and its allies had triumphed over evil. And um, so there's an optimism in those post-war films, but American society was in turmoil at the same time because of labor strife and uh, fear of communism and fear of the Soviet Union and fear of atomic war. But uh, My Darling Clementine is a kind of a romanticized view of Wyatt Earp taming the West. Right. And it's very stirring, but very uh, uh, unhistorical. I did the audio commentary on that. It's, uh, it's a good film, but Ford thought it was kind of a film for children. But Wagon Master, to me, has a purity and simplicity. And yet, as I mentioned, it's, it's full of uh, some dark undertones, but it has a very buoyant kind of hopeful quality because it's about a wagon train of uh, people expelled, you know, Mormons expelled from a bigoted town, and they, they go out west and they form a kind of an ideal community. And um, Russell Campbell wrote a piece on Fort Apache, and he said that the fort, the army fort in there, which... Um, Ford portrays in, in loving detail. I mean, you love the, the army guys, even though they all get slaughtered because they're blindly following authority, which is uh, an interesting paradox. He said that Ford is trying to create an ideal community, which only existed in the 19th century. There were these utopian communities. And Russell said it only existed in those communities and among the Indians, ironically. And so he's creating his vision of a good society. And he's doing that with uh, Wagonmaster, which is a parable of American immigration, which he was all in favor of. And as I mentioned, he always involved ethnic groups in his films, uh, black people throughout his body of work and Asians and uh, French Canadians and uh, Mexican Americans and uh, Germans and all kinds of ethnic groups. That was not fashionable at the time. Ford was an Irish American. And when I was a kid, you were supposed to believe in the melting pot theory, which is we all, you know, uh, kind of melt down our ethnic differences to become Americans, whatever that is. But when Alex Haley did Roots, we suddenly all discovered, hey, we should be proud of our ethnic backgrounds. And everybody is into Ancestry.com and, you know, proud of their backgrounds. But Ford was doing that at a time when it was not fashionable. And he gets attacked by people to some extent. Um, I did a book called Two Cheers for Hollywood, which is my collection of shorter pieces. And I, I wrote some new pieces on Ford. One was about his ethnic um, themes and another was about his sense of humor. And what he gets attacked for mostly by people who don't like him is um, his sense of comedy. And part of that is it's subversive. And he is also, he's undercutting uh, conventional society and making fun of it. And he's, he's also, uh, his ethnic uh, concentration, it's sometimes stereotypical, but he's always involving various ethnic groups as part of the fabric of America, which I really think is great. And I think it makes his films a lot richer than films of, say, Howard Hawks, who hardly ever had minority groups in his films. But Ford's vision is, is I mean, I think, as John F. Kennedy said, America is a nation of immigrants. And Ford challenges um, 
kind of reactionary concept of America, but he's not a simple director to categorize politically. Um, I remember talking to Abraham Polanski. It took me 31 years or so to do my Ford biography because he was so hard to figure out, a very enigmatic man who kept himself mysterious. I was talking to Abe Polanski, who was a great blacklisted writer-director, and I said that Ford was conservative, and he said, no, no, you can't say that. He was, he was he wasn't that simple, you know, you can't categorize Ford. And that, that helped unlock Ford for me, that Ford had different parts. Part of him was conservative, part was liberal, and he was uh, subversive. Uh, one of his editors said he was a cop hater by religion, you know, being an Irishman. And um, <laughs> so in his films, you know, there, there, there are different shades and complexities and his characters represent different things. I'm curious, could you for us uh, make the jump from um, in terms of the Western and what it's up to from John Ford to Sergio Leone? Um, yeah. how, how did it change uh, moving forward from Ford's last? Leone worshipped Ford as, as most directors did. And Once Upon a Time in the West is a marvelous film, 1969. Right. Um, has a really beautiful sequence in Monument Valley. A lot of it is shot there. And uh, it used to be said that other directors avoided Monument Valley because they thought John Ford kind of owned it cinematically. Now it's become a cliche because it's used so much for commercials and, and other movies and things. It's it's become a little trite. But it's, it's the most beautiful place I've ever been. Ford said it was the most beautiful place on earth, he thought. And the light keeps changing all the time. It's just a marvelous place to, to be. And you can see that in the films. It's actually not very big, but it looks huge in the way he films it. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, Leone has this great scene where uh, Claudia Cardinale is an Italian immigrant who comes to the West to marry a guy. And she comes and she finds that the whole family has been slaughtered like in the searchers. So it's kind of a homage to Ford, but a very kind of revisionist look at the West and, and Leone was operatic and uh, he had this uh, vision of the West being this place of these, uh, you know, v extremely violent operatic gun gunfights. And he used some Ford actors like Woody Strode and people like that. And, and, but the most shocking thing in that film is when they have the massacre of a family and then you don't know who's doing it. And then Henry Fonda comes out of the, the weeds and, and it's like, the, the guy you love, you know, the guy who played Lincoln and Wyatt Earp and everything, he's he's this monstrous killer and with these great blue eyes, you know, right. and that was the, the shock that Leone was going for. So um, I like that film. I must admit, I'm since I'm kind of a traditionalist in the Western, uh, I, I, I have trouble with Westerns that are not shot in the United States, you know, films that are made in Italy or Spain as a lot of them were, they don't seem authentic to me because they, they look kind of strange, you know, or stylized. Right. Uh, I, can, I can relate to them, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I, I rather like, and Fistful of Dollars. But, you know, those are films that are deliberately detached from reality. And I kind of like Westerns, too, that have some connection to history and daily life. You know, there are a lot of great Westerns. Shane is actually my favorite western of all time even though i love john ford shane is kind of the archetypal western deliberately designed that way by george stevens it's about homesteaders and and uh, gunmen kind of the plot we've seen in thousands of westerns but it's so pure and, and beautifully done but 
I, I like it when they're grounded in reality. Orson Welles said of Ford, he said, John Ford uh, knows what the earth is made of, you know? <laughs> and so the, the Italian Westerns, um, I'm not as big a fan. I know some people just adore them. Uh, ironically, when I interviewed Ford in 1970, which was a strange experience because he was infamous for being difficult to interview, and I was only 23, but I was finishing my book on him and I wanted to meet him. And I wrote him and he, he, he didn't respond. So I called him and I got him on the phone and he said, yeah, come on out. And, you know, I talked to him and, and uh, he was very difficult. I was with him for an hour and he would refuse to answer questions or pretend he didn't remember Fort Apache or the searchers. And, you know, I mean, uh, he played games with interviewers, but sometimes he said things that were very insightful and, and thoughtful. And a lot of times he was just really cantankerous, but um, I knew that going in, but I was not the most um, sophisticated interviewer at 23. <laughs> uh, you know, he was, I, I've, I've interviewed about 15,000 people in my career as a journalist and, and biographer. I'd say he was the second hardest to interview. The first hardest was uh, Jean-Luc Godard, who's a complete asshole. Ford was really uh, difficult, but he had moments where he's warm and sweet. Um, I'll, you know, I'm going to put that link that you sent me because I, I listened to that interview and I'm going to make sure I put that in a link down below in the show notes. So if anybody wants to go here, it is a uh, it is a very it is a very. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you I, I'm describe glad, it? <laughs> Thank you for doing that. I'm glad I po I posted that online a couple of years ago because I thought it was good for people to hear it. I had a good reel to reel tape recorder and so it's good quality and it's a little embarrassing because, you know, like Ford would make me shout questions at him five times. Right. What, 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 yeah, what? You know, it. And, yeah. And like after the third time you wish you'd never asked the question. <laughs> a, few, a few times I say things that are kind of stupid and then I apologize for him. And, but I mean, you know, it's, it's like being there and the, what's great about it for a future biographer was um, just being in his presence was extremely valuable because I got a sense of him as a man um, through his evasions. It didn't matter so much what he was saying, but just the way he acted, his body language and his tone of voice and his, he seemed very vulnerable, which I thought was interesting. Here is this young fellow, here's this, the greatest director of all time and old man. And, and he seemed very kind of sensitive and uh, almost threatened by scholars coming out to talk to him and asking him difficult questions. My colleague, Mike Wilmington said, well, you were asking him tough questions that were uncomfortable, you know, and that set him off to some extent. And I, I think today I would be a little more diplomatic. What I realized later was, I mean, what surprised me, he, he retired in the midst of my interview. You can hear that about two thirds of the way through. He suddenly announces his retirement and it's very moving where he says, um, uh, I said, I'm sorry for asking you some dumb questions. And he said, well, they weren't, they weren't, it's not that, but he said, all you people ask the same questions and I'm, I don't know what to say anymore. And he said, I'm just a hard nosed, hardworking. And then there was this pause. He said, ex director, and I'm trying to retire gracefully. And that was a very moving pause before he says ex director. He had never said that before. And, um, uh, I didn't quite understand what was going on. And then some years later, when I was doing my book, I read through all his papers in Indiana University, uh, uh, Indiana University in Bloomington. And I, I, I checked in that 
period of August 1970. And it turned out I was there literally when his career ended, the last day of his career. He was waiting for a phone call from Italy. Woody Strode, his good friend, the actor who had gone to become a star in Italian Westerns, was trying to set up a film for Ford to direct a spaghetti Western. And Ford kept saying to his secretary, is the gentleman from Italy called? Uh, when is the man from Italy calling? You know, you seem very anxious about this. And and it became clear after a while that he wasn't getting this phone call he was expecting. And so what I found in his papers was uh, some documentation on this, that he was trying to set up his deal and the guy wasn't calling and he was accepting the reality of that while during, I, while during I was interview. <laughs> during the interview, oh my God, I mean, I arrived on the last day of his 53 year career just by strange coincidence. And then I, later that weekend, I started acting for Orson Welles in the other side of the wind, which was a feature film that he spent. I, I acted in it for more than five years. I'd never acted before, but I'd written a book on Welles. So he put me in it playing a young, um, writer writing a book about John Houston's character. And Houston is partly modeled on Ford. Wells made it partly because he was bothered that people like Ford and other great directors were not getting any work. And when I met Ford, part of the sadness was he, he hadn't been allowed to make a feature film for five years because Seven Women had flopped in 1966, which was a great film, but nobody in America went to see it and the critics attacked it. And it did well in other countries, but Wells was deeply upset that um, old directors were getting shunted aside by the, the new Hollywood, we call the Easy Rider Hollywood now. And so I was uh, in this film dealing with a guy like that, and I was following him around asking the same kind of questions I was asking for. So it's kind of an eerie coincidence, you know. I'm curious, with where the Western is now, um, we've kind of chased that arc to the present what what would you say about westerns now? How 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 would you describe maybe the last well two decades, three decades in of the western? Well, it's a complicated question because it's a complicated genre. Um, I came to the conclusion I when I was a screenwriter, I wanted to make a western, and I tried. When I came to Hollywood, I I was writing a western. I wanted to do a big John Wayne western, which was foolish in a way because he was he was still making his last films, and I was on the set of the shoot as his final film, but. Um, this was 1973, 74, and, and he was not fashionable anymore. But I had this idea for this grand John Wayne Western, and it was going to be a three-hour film, which was another thing. It's really hard to sell a long script, so it's like a 182-page script, you know. And I, he played a saddle tramp kind of character, like Harry Carey did in Ford's early westerns, in which, in other words, he was not a glamorized cowboy like a Tom Mix type character. He was this uh, ordinary kind of looking guy with a dirty outfit, and he was he was kind of a man of mixed morality, et cetera, like like a real person. And that's what made those films good. And and I got the script to John Wayne's reader, and he said, Duke doesn't want to play a saddle tramp at this time in his career. He read the script. He said he's, he's not going to do that. And I thought this is really ironic because Ford... I mean, Wayne modeled his career on Harry Carey and those kind of characters. By the time I came along, he had gotten so grand that in his later films, he would always play some, you know, huge rancher or uh, uh, sheriff or something, you know, some legendary stature, gunfighter or whatever. I thought that was kind of sad and short-sighted because it was a really good part for him and it didn't get made. What I kind of thought the future of the Western at that point is... Um, 
to deal with groups that are excluded from the most Westerns, like women and minority groups, like there still have been very few uh, good Westerns about Indians, for example, or black people in the West. There are a lot of black cowboys, you know. I had a black cowboy. I wanted Woody Strode to be uh, John Wayne's sidekick in this film. And, um, but, you know, there's The Ballad of Little Joe is a really good Western. It's about a woman who disguises herself as a man in the West to survive a terrific film. Um, or modern Westerns, I think, are good. Um, Rancho Deluxe was a good film. Jeff Bridges and Sam Waterston. Oh, yep. And it's a co commentary on how the West has changed and degenerated. And they're driving through uh, Indian Reservation and Sam Waterston, who plays an Indian, which today would be not the casting we would we would do. But he, he looks at the kind of rundown reservation. He says, I call this aluminum autumn. You know, uh, so there and Last Picture Show is a modern Western, a really terrific film, you know, about I mean, it's set in 1951, but it's about how the West had degenerated into kind of a sad uh, facsimile of what it used to be in its glory days, which we now realize were not so glorious. But if you look back at the the actual West, it was a grubby, horrible place you wouldn't want to live in. It was dangerous and muddy and dirty and. Uh, a film that I think is a great film came out <clears throat> a couple of years ago is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the okay. Coen yep. Brothers film, wonderful film. And it's a multi-part film and uh, it has different varieties of uh, modes the Coen Brothers like to satirize and subvert genres. And they do some very dark comedy in there, but they also have this very moving wagon train episode with Zoe Kazan, a wonderful actress playing a very moving character. And I won't say much more about it, but it'll break your heart if you see that film. And that's a Netflix production. Yeah, yeah. There have been a lot of good Westerns on television. And, you know, a lot of Westerns live on TV. You know, that people, you know, older people or <clears throat> anybody, I guess, you can watch a lot of Westerns on Turner Classic Movies or other right. channels. And right. that's where you can see the classic Westerns of the past. And so... Uh, films like a uh, TV show like Deadwood, you know, was popular and uh, Westworld was kind of a takeoff on Westerns. And so there's there's a, a room for the Western genre on TV and they do a lot of good character studies on television. I think that, the, frankly, they're doing if you're interested in characters and dialogue and drama, watch cable television and streaming TV, not theatrical films, which are mostly made for adolescents. <laughs> And they're, they tend to, American films have turned into kind of cartoony, you know, uh, uh, superhero kind of stuff. It's not my kind of thing. But um, if you want to, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs was a Netflix film. You can see it on Netflix. And so there are a lot of good things on, on TV like that. I assume one of the franchises or movies that you mentioned in terms of the adolescence is uh, the superhero movies that are popular, the Marvel films. Would you tack that on as a as a branch of a western? Like, is there are there is there any relation? Would you say to sort of yeah. that pure western sense? Yeah, I remember I went to a western conference in Sun Valley, Idaho, in 1976, and I was quoting Roger Corman, who I worked for, who's still active as a producer in his 90s, and he was saying to me that Star Wars and other science fiction films had replaced the western, as I kind of mentioned earlier, that in in the the kids minds that's what they wanted to see they didn't care about the history of the west and it seemed 
remote to them or whatever, but they could get off on science fiction films. Art Murphy, who was our critic on Variety at the time, he said his take on Star Wars was it was a World War II movie, but people didn't want it. They didn't care about World War II and they didn't care about the Nazis and the Japanese or whatever, but they could get into uh, killing the bad guys in outer space. It, It abstracted the conflicts and as I've mentioned, I prefer things that have some connection with history. Sure. So, you know, it's much more interesting to me to see how the white settlers interacted with Native Americans or how uh, law and order, as Howard Hawks told me, he said there are two kinds of Westerns. There's the pioneer period and there's the period where law and order comes. And he said, that's about it. You got two kinds of sure, films. Sure. Uh, but law and order is a good theme, you know, and that's that's part of the idea of the Western is the what we used to call the settling of the West, which we now see as a much more complex thing than taming the wilderness was our national myth for a long time, the manifest destiny. And Richard Slotkin did a series of good books on the Western, analyzing them in terms of American history. And uh, there have been a number of writers who've done that. And he calls it Gunfighter Nation. And, you know, we've had Henry Kissinger said, for example, that the archetypal American is a gunfighter who walks into town and cleans up the town. And so it, it gets gets into our national mythos and our uh, <laughs> sense of destiny and, and our role in the world. And um, so the Western can be a metaphor for many things. And as I said, Apocalypse Now is kind of the, the cowboy mentality in the West. If you look at the character played by Robert Duvall, for example, he's kind of a Western guy who's um, treating the uh, natives like we used to treat uh, Indians, you know? Well, so that brings up an interesting thing in terms of, um, and you've mentioned you're, you'd like to see some stuff that's grounded in reality, and there have been travesties there and, and everything else that you've described. You look at something like No Country for Old Men. Oh, that's a great film. Yeah, that's a wonderful film. That is a Western. It's a modern film. And it's what it's about, it's a very Western theme because it's about a lawman played by Tommy Lee Jones, who's an old-fashioned kind of guy in his view of the world, and his father was a lawman. And it's a very moving performance, but he's dealing with uh, the craziness of the modern world, a serial killer going around killing people with this horrible uh, cattle-killing device. It's kind of the, our worst nightmares of, you know, school shootings and all kinds of maniacs running around the breakdown of law and order in the modern world and, and terrorism. And, you know, it's kind of a metaphorical sure, sure. view. And so he's a man who's trying to uh, keep his, his moral compass and he can't, he realizes that this is something he can't understand anymore. He can't comprehend. And it's a metaphor for how our country has changed and, and we're out of control. And the ending is really moving. And a lot of people didn't like the ending, but I thought it was great. It was a dream that he had about his father and, how his father had gone on before him, you know, and and uh, it's sort of about how we've lost everything that we used to uh, care about in terms of our American values. And we're trying to hold on to our constitution and values of that sort, but we're questioning, you know, we question the values of early America and the West because, you know, early America had a great constitution, but women couldn't vote and, uh, Black people couldn't vote and Native Americans were treated poorly and poor people were treated badly. It was not an idyllic world, but it was founded on some ideal idealistic principles, although flawed because the Constitution said that black people were three fifths of a human being. So so uh, I'm interested because you see uh, you've got 
you've got all the pieces there of the Western, right? It's you've got the lawman, you've got a bad guy coming into town. Um, with what you just said, I would think, and a way to ultimately subvert, and a way to sort of the modern, um, sort of Western would be something to the effect of like whether there's minorities or or other players like that that actually fulfill the Western duty that the lawman actually brings peace or the lawman actually reorients justice. And if that was, if someone felt like, oh, well, that would look like um, minorities coming in and winning the day or really the white jerk racist guys gets killed or, or something like that. Like, but the, the structure of the Western would still be there in the center of the pure Western. But with that film, um, the lawman doesn't know what he's, I mean, as you described, he can't deal with it any longer. Uh, it's a sheriff that doesn't help. He doesn't win the day. It's sort of devolved into you're not subverting the old Western in terms of we're not racist anymore. You're subverting the structure of the Western by saying there is no justice. It's a 50-50, it's a 50-50 coin toss. Well, it's, it's yeah, literally a coin toss. It's a despairing look at American history, but we are a racist and we've always been a very racist country and, and the racism has become more obvious in recent years. It's always been festering right below the surface and the 60s, you know, when I grew up, that was the big theme in American history is racial uh, justice. And then in the 70s, things were looking good. And then when Reagan came along, it became more acceptable to make racist comments on television. For example, you would say things on somebody would say something on TV that, uh, well, I mean, today, some things that you would say would have gotten you fired in the 70s, you know, for making well, racist but, comments. But but I'm curious, though, because if I take on the Cohen it still seems to miss the mark in terms of uh, if it's a 50-50 coin toss, really, who cares about the racism? Well, that film doesn't deal, well. uh, I only mean in principle. I I understand it doesn't deal with that, but I'm just saying, who cares? Well, you could say it's an existential film, or you could say, I mean, some people think the Coen brothers are too uh, bleak in their worldview. I wrote a long monograph that, on would, them that would be a, an understatement <laughs> yeah they're very bleak but well they have a lot of joie de vivre and a lot of humor in their work too but uh, i i don't think that they're nihilists like some people think they are i mean there's some elements of their films that are extremely dark but um i think that I mean, uh, that's they curious have some... i'm curious i want to hear more about that I, i'd be curious to know why we wouldn't it's a 50 50 coin toss he either dies or he doesn't well he's he's a hero, heroic figure in a sense that he's a man who tries to live according to a moral code which is antiquated and futile in the viewpoint of the film because how do you deal with a man going around killing people with a cattle killing device you know but that, how do you that, that question has been asked since the get-go i mean they may have they may have portrayed the villain in ways that they shouldn't and i think you've made that clear in the past mm-hmm. we've we've criminalized people maybe we ought not to have but the structure of good and bad and the structure of that's not right that must end all of that's still under there, whether or not it's being mischaracterized. When we get to the Coen brothers, um, I think the film failed. Um, and it's, it, it, I think it's, it was the entire undoing of, of, of the Western in, in the sense of, well, who cares? Uh, so you feel that uh, it failed aesthetically in that sense? I think those guys are wicked talented. And I also think they're very funny, as you mentioned. But in terms of um, uh, you've unpacked the history of the Western in film, there's been sins of the past. And and it's been interesting that they didn't 
um, and, and like you mentioned, it's it's uh, there's been sins in America's past too, and those are often reflected in our films, especially the westerns. And there's a mm-hmm. fun back and forth there. But the Coen Brothers with No Country for Old Men don't attempt to answer the crimes done in the past or the the things that were they they seem to just say who cares well yeah i mean you i i understand what you're saying and another film that is a great western in recent times was uh, unforgiven the clint eastwood film right right and that has a very uh i i don't want to say uh nihilistic uh conclusion but it's a very bleak conclusion that well especially in reference to the cowboy right i mean he's not he's not somebody attractive or he's not somebody that we ought to emulate it's actually there seems to be real um consequences to that kind of person's life and he really shot to reflect that that it's not a glorious life well i think that's a great film and i recognize it as as a classic right away there are people who disagree but i i what it's about is a man who's a stone cold killer who, who is revulsed by killing there's a great scene where he's talking about how horrible it is to kill a man and then he's he's trying to be just a farmer and he's he's a failure but he's lured back into killing and, and it ends in the slaughter and it's kind of a uh somewhat of related to the italian westerns that eastwood made right that ma- made him a star and uh some people say well it just ends in the slaughter but to me it's a very um sad film about human nature and that somebody's trying to escape being a killer and he can't and it's it's a it's a despairing look and i mean shakespeare dealt with themes like that that people were you know macbeth or something uh, uh it doesn't mean that uh you know shakespeare's view of humanity is very dark in macbeth and other plays but it doesn't mean that he doesn't care about human beings or whatever and i think that the rap on the cone brothers is that they look down on people they don't like people they don't care about people but you don't have to be a um, sentimental uh, sure. Well, portrayer if, well, of humanity uh, but, to to care about people. I think you care about this guy in Unforgiven, or you care about the the sheriff and No Country for Old Men. You sympathize with his dilemma. Um, he's not a perfect man; nobody is, but he's trying to uphold a certain kind of uh, sense of rectitude. But the film is saying that that kind of rectitude, unfortunately, doesn't get you very far anymore because the world is so violent. But, you know, I think what it, it, it goes back to what we've been saying, that we, we live in a very violent country and our country was founded on genocide and slavery. After all, this is not a new development. And we went through a period where we romanticized cowboys and Western heroes, like in My Darling Clementine, White Earp is this great guy, but he wasn't really a great guy. He was a pimp and a... Uh, killer and you know the gunfight at the OK Corral lasted nine seconds it was a fight between two rival gangs and they romanticized him out of uh, out of shape you know but we we like those myths in our culture but the better filmmakers like the Coen brothers and Ford and Eastwood I think question those myths and say wait wait a second uh, you know the guy in Unforgiven thinks that he's trying to kick violence but who is he kidding Right. And Tommy Lee Jones is trying to be a good lawman. But, you know, like, what's the point? It's it's sad. Well, it is, but it I, is though. They, you, I think you just I think you, you actually just summarized it. I mean, I wonder um, if it just if if it was punted too far. Well, you could say that. I mean, you know, some people say that I don't think so. And a film that some people have said that about is a serious man, their film 
which is really the book of Job. And nobody attacks the book of Job for being despairing. It's a great work <laughs> of literature. Uh, but boy, is that bleak. I read that again after watching A Serious Man. But A Serious Man is about a good man, ordinary guy, professor who just goes through one horrible ordeal after another. And at the end of the film, a, a tornado is coming toward a school and it's going to kill a bunch of children. Some of my friends were horrified and outraged. My God, the Coen brothers hate humanity because they but i mean all you have to do is read the paper every day and read about all kinds of horrors that go on in our world and it's just something that the great artists have to deal with um, i mean some artists are comic directors billy wilder who i'm writing a critical study about deals with some very dark themes nazism and other themes sure um and people's uh, corruption and chicanery and films like ace in the hole and foreign affair but it doesn't mean that he hates humanity. Uh, he just doesn't sentimentalize humanity and neither do the Cone brothers, uh, but they have a great kind of love and uh, affection for their characters, like the character played by um, Jeff Bridges in True Grit, which I don't think is as good as the John Wayne version, but it, uh, but I think that there's some things in it that are very good. But I, they, 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 they love uh, humor and they love uh, eccentricity and, and individuality. Fargo is another film that initially I thought that was too bleak, you know, I mean, because it's, it's about, they call their characters idiots, you know, they're these guys who try to do some scam and everything blows up in their face. Right. There's, there's a dark humor that I respond to, just like I respond to Dr. Strangelove in films of that sort. Um, uh, I, and I totally sympathize with that. I think those guys are, are talented. And I do think more often than not, the characters I meet in their stories, I think like, oh, I know one of them. I know that person. Or, you know, it's, yeah, or, or, those are real, that, those are are real those characters. Films. Yeah. Yeah, we are. I mean, Burn After Reading, a film that isn't talked about much, is a very funny, but very kind of easily identifiable film about a bunch of uh, losers who who are trying to scam the CIA and the Russians and you know it's it's like these people are way over their heads and but we can relate to them because they have all the human flaws that we all have but they're in this extraordinary situation but they're doing some really stupid things but I mean we, you know if you're honest about life we've all done some really stupid things that we regret and we hope that we don't do more and part of part of what art is about is cautionary tales you go to see a movie and you think <laughs> wow i'm really glad i didn't do that i i often have that feeling in a dream i'll wake up and think geez i'm really glad i didn't do that you know because sometimes in a dream you do things that maybe you've been your subconscious has been thinking wouldn't be I, fun to oh, totally that. i think you're totally right about that and and i think that's where um with No Country for Old Men in particular, where I think it's so popular, and, and you're right, it is. People do love it or hate it or, or what have you. But it seems to me, taking that on, that the world is a flip of a coin. And you see that in the very final moments of the film where he's in an intersection and he gets in a wreck. Yeah. And, and as the viewer, you don't know, is he alive or dead? Is he alive or well, dead? And, he's, and he walks you know, away I mean, from that. And, and that was just another flip of the coin. That was pro That's reality. It's a flip of the coin. And and with some of the with very clear moral indignation that you, that you have or have displayed about choices made in the past, which some I share and some I don't, it seems like anything like uh, that is racist or that is not good or that is bad. You take out that qualifier when you do reality as a flip of the coin. Well, I think your point is, is a serious question, and I try to deal with that in my, I wrote a 40-page monograph, as they say, about the Cone Brothers, and I, I really oh, wow. wrestle with that. I wrestle with that question throughout, and I try to answer that, and I probably haven't 
done a great job doing that. I would love, know, I would love to see it. I, I'll, I'll make sure when we, I'll send you this link and I'll, I'd love to. Yeah, I'll send you a copy. Ops, awesome. Um, but I watched all their films in a two week period and I, I don't, I don't think they're all as good as, uh, you know, I mean, some are not so good, some are great, but I do think they're among the best current filmmakers. They're kind of like Billy Wilder, I think in, in modern terms, but, um, Sure. Uh, yeah. Okay. They, they, their work is somewhat despairing, but that's a valid point of view. Um, they don't deal with race explicitly in um, No Country for Old Men, although the villain is is Spanish, so he's yeah, foreign, right, right. foreign, and you could say he has maybe kind of uh, in the Western mythology, he's sort of like an Indian character. He's, but he's he's a figure of uh, uh, irrational violence, like they would deal with in the Old West. Uh, but he doesn't have any real motives. He's just a psychopath. But we live in a world in which there are a lot of psychopaths who go around shooting up schools and things. And how do you deal with that? I mean, if you know, twenty kids get killed in a school, how does how do you compute that with our view of morality? And that I, that's a super, that's a very real in the world kind of thing. And I think it's definitely worth illustrating in in narrative. And and I would just hope, you hope and pray that you have a lawman or someone around capable of doing something well the sad part of life though and i think we have to face it is that if your kid is going to the sandy hook elementary school there's no lawman there to save them and the people working in the school got slaughtered and you know nobody uh we we have policemen we have soldiers we have firemen but you can't stop you know you could be walking down the street and get hit by a car or have something fall on your head and, and that's just the way life is and, and how do you live under those circumstances that's a question that philosophers and 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 dramatists have been asking for a long time how do you live in a world that seems uh uh crazy or, or futile i i don't think that means that the filmmakers are misanthropes um, I mean, sure. I, 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 you know, I don't think being a misanthrope necessarily rules out being a good artist, but I mean, I, I, I mean, we, we, in principle, we don't like to approve of misanthropes because they hate humanity and we're humans. <laughs> uh, I, I believe in, um, who was the Roman poet who said, nothing human is alien to me. You know, that's kind of what sure. the Cone brothers are about, that we're like all those eccentric, flawed people in in their films and they're they get a kick out of them and sometimes people don't like humor about serious subjects but um it it is a an arguable point of view at least but people can differ on these things well i appreciate you letting me letting me uh press and prod there um yeah i want to make sure you have a book um your, your most recent book on frank capra who you've mentioned in the interview um can you tell us a little bit about him yeah i spent seven and a half years 1984 to 92, writing a biography of Frank Capra called Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, which I then revised in 2000 because I got more government documents from the FBI. I spent seven years trying to get his FBI files. I finally got them. And um, he was, he is still one of my favorite filmmakers, a great American filmmaker like Ford deals with American values. And Capra was the leading filmmaker of the 30s. He captured the spirit of the Depression era. Um, it happened one night, Mr. Deeds goes to town, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, some of our greatest films. And I still love these films. Mr. De- Mr. Smith goes to Washington in particular is one of my favorite films. And it's a great film about America, about a, 
idealistic guy who goes to Washington and deals with terrible corruption. And you know, Capra's films have these improbable happy happy endings, as somebody said, by force majeure, he brings up the happy ending. <clears throat> but he, he, he makes you kind of buy it. Uh, it is, the, few films are darker than It's a Wonderful Life. That's a beloved film. But it, as somebody said, if you don't believe in angels, it's a film about a guy committing suicide. And he's he's rescued by an angel at the end of the film. I prefer endings that are not supernatural. That you know, Capper kind of avoided after a while political themes because he was burned by the blacklist period. Nobody was more patriotic than Capper. He was an Italian immigrant, and in World War II, he also served uh, the country making um, propaganda films. And he came back and. The red, the red Scare hit him hard because he was a social critic in his films of the 30s. But what I discovered, nobody knew this, was his films seemed kind of chaotic ideologically. People had trouble figuring out, well, this scene seems conservative. This scene seems liberal. What is this? You know, what is he really about? Well, the, what they didn't realize was he was a Republican, conservative, reactionary, anti-communist. And a lot of his writers were left-wingers or liberals. And uh, he worked with about 20 or 25 people who got in trouble with the blacklist. And some of them were communists. The guy who wrote Mr. Smith, Sidney Buckman, was a member of the Communist Party at the time. And it's probably one of the greatest patriotic films ever made about America, but it's also very critical of the corruption of our uh, government. But it, it upholds the values of the Constitution. And I found out the big discovery I made was that Capra had informed on Sidney Buckman and other people when he was, uh, he himself was accused after the war of being uh, disloyal to America, which is a terrible blow and absurd because nobody was more loyal and patriotic. And he took it very hard and um, he, he panicked and to save his own skin, he wrote a secret document informing on several people, including Buckman and Michael Wilson, who worked on It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, uh, Ian McClellan Hunter and other writers. And, and basically what Capra, his defense was the writers made me do it. Those left-wing writers made me do it. And so he was negating his own work, you know, the liberal side of his work. And he, he actually said, I'll never work with another liberal writer again, which means you couldn't work with good writers because most of the writers in Hollywood are liberal. And so his work after the war collapsed. And I was fascinated. I was wondering I wrote the American Film Institute salute to Capra with George Stevens Jr. in 1982. And I, I had gotten to know Capra a bit and I realized he was quite different from his benign liberal Gandhi-like public image. He was actually a real misanthrope. And I wondered about that. And I, I began looking at his papers and found this document very soon. You know, I, I knew where to look. And um, so I realized I had a big story on my hands that everybody had missed all those years that helped explain all the contradictions in his films. And so I wrote this biography and I had the cooperation, I thought of Capra's archivist, Janine Basinger of Wesleyan University where his papers are housed and Alfred A. Knopf publishers, uh, Robert Gottlieb, the legendary editor was my editor. And um, Janine Basinger promised complete cooperation and, and I could quote all the unpublished stuff I wanted from his, his voluminous papers. But she soon turned on me and somehow got in with Gottlieb and uh, they became friendly and turned against me and tried to stop my book from coming out and tried to neuter the book. She did a book for him on It's a Wonderful Life, which was a real conflict of interest. 
And uh, so they made my life very difficult by uh, obstructing my book for years. And um, she wouldn't let me quote from the material, basically. And she kept promising she would, and then she never gave permission. And so I was embroiled in a legal battle for four years on this book. And it became very Kafka-esque. It's like the trial, you know, for, uh, Frank Capra meets Franz Kafka. And so I kept voluminous notes about this um, and uh, had like more than 20 boxes of notes. I wrote down every phone conversation, kept all the memoranda and letters. And uh, for legal reasons, I was advised by my lawyers to have a paper trail. And um, I won. I realized after a while to get this book out with the integrity it deserved, I had to go to another publisher. And they were, Knopf was either going to kill the book or else gut the book. They're going to have her edit the book and, and take out things like his informing and other things and maybe leave in some, some things that were, I mean, I found out his autobiography, the name above the title, which everybody liked, was a lie from start to finish almost. Uh, he, he told the truth about his date of birth and the date he left for America, and that's about it. So it was, it was good uh, training for me to not take anything at face value. And I interviewed 175 people, and I, I really researched it to the nth degree. And I just found so many things that were surprising and different on every page, as one reviewer said, there was a surprise. And, uh, but I managed to get the book out with Simon & Schuster. I had to... Uh, not quote the unpublished material, but I, I summarized it as the lawyer for Random House said, well, you can't paraphrase, you can summarize. There were some court decisions that came out in that period that made it harder to quote unpublished material as you used to be able to. And there was a friend of mine who was a, he later won the Pulitzer Prize, who said, this is the most horrible story I've ever heard about publishing. <laughs> and so I was able to, you know, use the gist of what Capra wrote in his diaries and his letters and things, but in my own words, and I think I'm a better writer than Capra. So I think it actually helped the book and made the, the book was terribly long. So it was more compact. But I got the point across, the points across. He's a, such a fascinating, complex figure that he kept my interest creatively going for seven and a half years, despite all the difficulties. I had a lot of financial problems and physical problems and all kinds of things resulting from this ordeal. Well, listen, I've gone way over time with you. You've been very gracious. I'd love to have you on to talk about John Wayne at some point. Um, I'll send you my my article, Hail to the Duke, uh, which I really enjoyed writing. And yeah, he's he's a great character to talk about, an underrated actor. He's not given the due that he deserves. Now, is there somewhere I can send folks that they could find a ton of your stuff? Like, is there is there a website? Is there what would be the best place if people wanted to get more of your content? Ah, well, I have a website called uh, josephmcbridefilm.com, which is a little out of date because I haven't updated. I've been so busy, but it it gives a lot of information about the various books that I've written. And my Wayne article is on there, actually. And um, I also have websites about, frankly, unmasking Frank Capra. And uh, But you can go on Amazon and buy uh, my book, Two Cheers for Hollywood, which is my collection of pieces. And uh searching for John Ford. John Ford critical study with Michael Wilmington is out of print, but I'm going to bring that back into print eventually. Um, my Capra book, Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, is also on Amazon. I did a biography of Steven Spielberg, et cetera. Wow. So I've been busy. Absolutely. Like I said, you've been so kind with your time and with the discussion. 
Very much appreciate it. Well, Jake, thank you for taking the time. It was really a fun talking to you. And you raised some, that question about the Cone Brothers is a really good question that really made me uh, think, and, and I hope I answered it well enough, but um, I try, it, it, it's a serious question, but it gets into some of the same issues about sure. the West and sure. our, his, our history and our view of uh, reality and human nature. Thank you very much for the good discussion. Awesome. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate you. Yeah, I'll talk to you later.